0: Tonight, tonight, uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, the only reason we're going to take three verses is because that's all that's in this chapter. <laughs> Very short little chapter here, but as we have noted, uh, God's providential care uh, for His people. I don't know, do we have uh, the outline here? I guess not. I think they're working on it. So anyway, uh, the theme is uh, God's providential care for his people. And uh, we have worked our way through the book down to chapter 10, which is the epilogue, which is uh, Mordecai exalted. So uh, we now come to the conclusion of the story of Esther. There it is. Thank you, guys. Uh, Throughout the book, uh, the Jews were constantly under duress, but now they have come to a time of peace. God has brought them to this point. And God has providentially preserved them and brought them through some very tumultuous and dangerous times. And this is reflective of what God is doing down throughout the times of the Gentiles in which we currently are living as well. Uh, The Jews during this time are under the domination of the Gentiles and oppressed by the Gentiles. And yet God continues to preserve them as a people and ultimately will bring them through it. Ultimately, they're going to come through this times of the Gentiles. The worst is yet to come under the Antichrist. But God is going to ultimately bring them through it uh, into the kingdom and into this time of peace and this golden age in the the kingdom. A little bit of, you know, here's where we are, the times of the Gentiles. It began with the exile, the Babylonian exile. All the way through here, we're talking the times of the Gentiles, which concludes at... uh, uh, the, the, the second coming of Jesus Christ here. So the times of the Gentiles. Uh, and One more slide on this. Uh, we might call this uh, the times of the Jews. Uh, Jewish supremacy in the earth, so to speak. The Old Testament kingdom of Israel. I mean, they were the people. The Jews. And then uh, we come to the time of the captivity. The Babylonian captivity, which really kicks off this. The times of the Gentiles. And that's followed by the Medo-Persians, Greece, Rome. Finally, the revived Roman Empire, which will be under Antichrist. This whole segment of history is the times of the Gentiles. Then we have the second coming of Jesus Christ. And again, Jewish supremacy in the earth. The times of the Jews, so to speak. uh, Where the Jews will again be the head and not the tail. They will be the the prominent uh, nation in, in the world at that time. Well, this little uh, postscript here in chapter 10 is really a special tribute to Mordecai. And humanly speaking, God did use him in a very crucial manner. But in truth, uh, the real story is about the sovereign God behind the scenes. And I love that about God's story. History is His story. And He's the ultimate player at all times. We run our race, but really, it is God that puts us in our place to even run the race that we've been given. Uh, There is no really self-made person. There are people that think they're self-made, but they're deceived. I mean, what do you have that you have not received, as the Bible says? We are what we are by the grace of God. And uh, if we're in a position of some elevation, it's not like we put ourselves there. They say like if you see a, a turtle on a fence post, you know it didn't get there by itself, right? I mean, somebody put it there. And that's the way it is with us in our lives. God puts us uh, where we are. Well, let's pick it up. Chapter 10, verse 1. And King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. Well, why is this stated here? I'm open. we don't really know why. I mean, all of a sudden, just out of the blue here at the end, okay, he's imposing tribute or taxes. Uh, We're not told why, but in context, the thought here of the reign of Ahasuerus is placed right alongside the greatness of Mordecai. Those two ideas are running parallel here. So many surmise that really the idea here is that under the leadership of Mordecai, King Ahasuerus continued to prosper and wield absolute power throughout his realm as as indicated in the fact that he was able to to tax all of these places and continue to uh, carry on in that way. Imposed tribute can refer to forced taxation or forced labor or to both. And again, this empire was massive. We have noted this. Uh, It consisted of 127 provinces. Just a massive amount of area. I mean, the revenue from that would be great, I would think, if you're bringing in those taxes and and controlling that amount of area. Well, verse 2 continues. Now, all the acts of his power and his might and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? Well, this suggests the historicity of the book of Esther. Notice it says, are they not written in the book of the chronicles? Uh, Again, suggests the historicity of the book of Esther as it appeals to the official records as recorded in that day. Uh, We don't have these anymore, but uh, they were available here. And this formula, in its various forms, appears frequently in the book of Kings and Chronicles. It's as if the author is saying, uh, check the facts for yourself in the official records, which were available in those days. Uh, Henry Morris uh, says this, Although this book and its records have not been found, perhaps destroyed by later emperors or conquerors, The essential historicity of the events is confirmed by the long-continued observance of the feast days of Purim, an observance which could never have been initiated and sustained otherwise. A little footnote here. uh, Eight years after Purim was established, King Ahasuerus was murdered in his bedroom in 465 B.C. So, uh, yeah, things did go well for a while, but then eight years later, somebody kills him in his bedroom. And we really don't know what happened to Mordecai and Esther after that. But we do know that the Feast of Purim continued to be celebrated as it is still done today. So the, this history of the Feast of Purim extends back for about 2,500 years at this point. So it's, uh, the, the historicity of it is long and lasting. Verse 3. For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren. Seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. Mordecai was second in command over this vast Gentile empire. And to think about it, a Jew was second in command at this point, second only to King Ahasuerus. Now, a contrast is drawn throughout the book between Haman, who is called the enemy of the Jews five times, and Mordecai, who is six times specifically called Mordecai the Jew. And to finish it off, he is here called great among the Jews. He was like the the premier hero uh, figure for the Jews during these days, for sure. Under Mordecai, the Jews experienced the exact opposite of what they experienced under Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Under Haman's leadership, they were in constant danger and really in fear for their very existence. But under Mordecai now, they experienced good and peace. Now, there's a little debate as to how Mordecai should be seen and understood in our minds. Was he merely a great patriot, which everybody acknowledges he was a great patriot, or was he also a man of God? Uh, Bible Knowledge Commentary says this, It is noteworthy that the book of Esther nowhere states that Mordecai was a righteous individual or that he was careful to follow the law. So we're not really told those specifics. Still, it is noted that his fasting and instruction as he went along does seem to indicate that God was on his radar, for sure. In this verse, Mordecai is described as great among the Jews, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. Definitely was very favorable towards his people. You say, well, you could be a great patriot without being a great man of God. That's true. But normally, in the Old Testament, those kind of go together, often. Uh, Moody Bible Commentary says both these activities, moreover, canonically describe a person who is motivated by the fear that is a slavish love of the Lord. So they say generally that tends to be the case, but again, probably don't want to be too specific. At the very least, Mordecai was a great patriot uh, who had the well-being of God's people in view, which is consistently indicative of a, a God perspective on life. Well, There were certainly lots of compromise in his life, as seen earlier in the book, in the things he tolerated and that he went along with. Uh, Perhaps we should see him as a man who found himself in in a whole context of compromise, but as God was at work providentially in relation to the nation, he was also at work in Mordecai. And I think we see progression in this way as we work our way through the book. I can't believe that God was at work through him as he did, and, and this was leaving him totally unaffected. I think God was at work in his life as well. Certainly there is much to command about Mordecai, humanly speaking. He brought up Esther as a strict but loving disciplinarian to where when she became queen, she continued to respect what he had commanded her. She had regard for him, and she was taught to properly respect that authoritative figure in her life. I think that speaks well of him in terms of how he did in in raising her. And then uh, his character was such that he was faithful in his role in the king's gate. Uh, Remember back in chapter 2, when he became aware that there were two individuals who were seeking to harm the king that he brought that information to Esther, who then told the king uh, he was faithful in that role. In chapter 3, we see that Mordecai uh, Mordecai had the internal fortitude to not bow before wicked Haman, the archetype enemy of the Jews. And that took some boldness because it went against the command of the king. The com- king had commanded that everybody bow before Haman, but not Mordecai. I mean, this guy was a, a man of some... Uh, Internal fortitude. say, well, it was just ego. I don't know. It seemed like there was some real boldness involved there too. In chapter 4, it was Mordecai who provided the impetus that moved Esther into action with the king. He really moved her off-center in that situation. Remember back in chapter 4 where he said to Esther, If you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This really speaks, I think, of his belief in God. That God is sovereignly controlling. And that God is going to preserve his people. And maybe God has put you in this position. It's not right just to remain silent and not do something here. It was Mordecai who crafted the counter-decree. Under the direction of the king, which allowed the Jews to defend themselves. Chapter 8. And it was Mordecai who was key in establishing and publishing the guidelines for the celebration of Purim that was sent out to the Jews throughout the empire. So, yes, humanly speaking, Mordecai deserves a great place of honor among the Jews. Thus, chapter 10, verse 3 is a fitting tribute to Mordecai the Jew. In the end, those who curse the Jews, as seen in Haman, are cursed of God. And those who bless the Jews, as seen in Mordecai, who himself was a Jew, are blessed of God. And I think that's an irrevocable law that goes back to Genesis 12, 3. We often quote it, but it's still true. Where God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Ultimately, uh, through the great descendant of Abraham, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it's interesting to note that Esther is not mentioned here in chapter 10 I mean the tributes are being handed out they're all going to Mordecai where's Esther Uh, is this testimony to the fact that uh, Mordecai wrote the book (laughs) I don't know about any of that but uh, she was a major player in this drama there's no doubt I would think that she'd maybe get a little footnote in here somewhere right Uh, but she's not she's not mentioned at all Uh, why who knows we're not told why Perhaps because in reality, she really kind of continued to function under the shadow of Mordecai's headship and and his leadership role. I mean, he is the dominant figure here in the whole book of Esther, humanly speaking. And maybe she uh, is in that shadow as well. Well, during the Feast of Purim, the Jews pray with a threefold emphasis to this day. Number one, uh, first uh, they pray thanking Yahweh that they are counted worthy. Well, they might want to rethink that prayer just a little bit Uh, and come back to, uh, for example, Lamentations 322, 323. Uh, Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Uh, I don't know about praying. Lord, I thank you that I'm so worthy. Uh, You know, Malachi seems to say the exact opposite of that, where the the prophet says, or God says, I am the Lord, I do not change, therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Uh, In other words, God is faithful to his covenant promises, and that's what keeps Israel uh, from being uh, wiped off the face of the earth, from being consumed. Uh, It's not because they're so worthy, it's because of God's faithfulness. The preservation of Israel is not because they are somehow worthy. I want to correct the Jews on that prayer just a little bit. But rather because of God's unchanging covenant faithfulness. This is all about God's character in spite of them and not because of them. And we can write that over the whole book of Esther itself. So we noted there was a lot of compromise. Even to get to the point where you've got a Jewish gal marrying this total pagan Gentile king. That should never happen according to what we find under the law of Moses in the Old Testament. But it happened. And everybody kind of went along with it. There was a lot of compromise in in view there. This is ultimately a story about God's faithfulness in spite of His people who are not faithful. Second, they pray thanking God for preserving their ancestors. And that is certainly appropriate. Amen to that prayer. And finally, they thank God that they have lived to be able to celebrate another Feast of Purim. The Feast of Purim is really a celebration of God's providential preservation of them as a people. Bible knowledge commentary, as the original Jewish readers read this account, they would have been struck by the way God was sovereignly protecting them, often when they did not even know it. I like that line. You know, God is providentially taking care of his people, often in ways we don't even begin to know or understand. Many things in the book of Esther happened that were beyond anyone's control, except that of God who oversees history. It's neat to think about God's providential care. Uh, Things don't just, you know, happen. It's not just luck or or happenstance. Uh, No, God is controlling what's going on. The book of Esther is a magnificent piece of poetic work from from a literary standpoint in that it leaves God out, never mentioning God even one time. The name of God is not mentioned in the entire book. And yet his providential activity is seen on every page. It really is a wonder to behold how this was put together with that idea. It's like these people are going along, leaving God out of the equation, and yet God is behind the scenes, providentially taking care of them in spite of themselves. I think that's true for all of us. None of us are worthy. Uh, We are what we are by the grace of God. You know, he is is a good God. And praise the Lord for his goodness. Now let's talk about providence for just a little bit, just by way of review. People often confuse miracles with providence. That was a miracle. No, it was an act of providence. Uh, When someone gets to the hospital just in the lick of time to save their life, that's not a miracle. Now we call it a miracle. But that's providence. Providence. When the person dies and is raised back to life and doesn't have to go to the hospital, now that's a miracle. That's a miracle. You understand the difference, right? Providence and a miracle. A miracle is God's direct intervention in which he supersedes or bypasses the normal laws of nature. In what the Bible calls signs and wonders. I mean, this is not this is bypass this is supernaturally bypassing the normal laws of nature. That's a miracle. And that's what Christ's ministry and the Apostles' ministry was all about. Signs and wonders, miracles. And they were unique uh, to Christ and, and the Apostles. Uh, really, we got three time periods. You know, you got Moses and, and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, and then Christ and the Apostles. Really, those three segments of time where these things were somewhat normal in biblical history. Sign miracles are not happening today. Uh, Now, certainly, God can perform any miracle He wants to, anytime, anywhere He wants to. And I would never want to uh, limit God in any way. But uh, sign miracles were especially attached to the Messiah. They had sign value because they related to Scripture and fulfillment of what He was doing in His earthly ministry. But for today, what is normal, God's normal mode of operation is His providential workings. And those continue unabated. Providence has a lot to do with timing. God's timing in which things happen at just the right time to bring out a certain outcome without violating the normal laws of nature. God does it without bypassing the normal laws of nature as in the case of the miracle where God overrules the normal laws of nature. So providence happens within the normal course of nature and yet clearly... There is a sovereign hand guiding events to just the right outcome, in just the right way, at just the right time. And God is constantly providentially guiding our path. Uh, You know, you try to figure out what is the will of God. Uh, There's a number of things you can look at. Number one, you want to look, well, what does the Bible say? there are certain things the Bible says to do. There are certain things the Bible says not to do. Number one, consider that. I mean, you want to know what the will of God for your life is? Maybe understand what the Bible has to say. I mean, this is the Word of God. You want a message from God? It's right here, the Word of God. Secondly, the Bible puts a high premium on godly counsel. There's wisdom in many counselors. Godly counselors. Godly counsel. Uh, You know, if you're going to do something major, maybe you want to seek some godly counsel. And third, God does work... uh, Providentially. He does open and close doors. He is in charge of what's going on in our lives providentially. Uh, note these uh, verses. Psalm 37, 23, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Proverbs 16:9: a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And then Proverbs 20, 24. A man's steps are of the Lord. How then can a man understand his own way? It's not like, man, you know, sometimes you head out this way and you're going this way. But all of a sudden, things get changed to where it's just a little little different way than where you thought, well, hey, we're going this way. All the time that's happening. Uh, How can a man understand his own way? We can't because it's above us and God is providentially, sovereignly guiding in our lives. All kinds of things go on. Indeed, we make our plans, but the outcome is in God's hands. The Lord wills we shall live and do this or that, as it says in the book of James. Constantly we see God routing and rerouting our ways. And often in ways that we don't understand or we don't even see coming. J. Sidlow Baxter, great statement. This mysterious reality, which we call providence, this sovereign manipulation of all the ordinary non-miraculous doings which make up the ordinary ongoing of human affairs so as to bring about by natural processes those results which are divinely predetermined, he says, is the mightiest miracle of all, (laughs) which is a great thing to say. I like this from the Puritan writer uh, Jeremiah Burroughs. He wrote this hundreds of years ago. There is nothing that befalls you, but there is a hand of God in it. When a certain passage of providence befalls me, that is one wheel, and it may be that if this wheel were stopped, a thousand other things might come to be stopped by this. When God has ordered a thing for the present to be thus and thus, how do you know how many things depend upon this thing? God may have some work to do 20 years hence that depends on this passage of providence that falls out this day of this week. That's a neat, that's a neat concept, isn't it? I mean, all these things that are interconnected all, all the way through. This leads to this, to this, to this, to this, to this. God is organizing all of these things. His providential care. I love it. We're in His care. Now, when I started this study, uh, we were in the throes of figuring out what to do and whether God was leading us to pursue the purchase of this property. And so I thought it would be good for us to do a study here in the book of Esther with the theme of providence. Uh, No matter how things turned out, I thought this will be a good study no matter what. Uh, Providence is a good study. And truly, we saw the providential hand of God move as we went through the process. On June 6th, we had an all-church meeting, you'll recall, to get input from the church and to see if God would, would so move through the church so we could uh, move forward or not. And uh, as we added it all up in terms of what we felt comfortable, we could borrow. We still need $165,000. And so we brought it to the church. No pressure, but uh, we shared, here's what the deal is. And if you would like to give, uh, what would you be willing to give? And as we tallied it up that night, I can tell you there was tears in my eyes. We tallied up to $235,000. And it was a great blessing. The next morning, we submitted our our bid, and providentially, just in the nick of time. As we submitted our bid, another potential buyer had their agent ready to submit a bid as well. And this particular agency was a government agency, uh, flush with cash, They had no problem with cash. And the realtor told me that just as he was ready to submit their bid, he looked up on the computer screen and it said this property was pending. And he couldn't believe it. He said, we had been through that place so many times. We were ready to move. And he told me, you must have been praying harder. (laughs) And I assured him we were. No, I didn't say anything, but, uh, but it was clear. The providence of God was on display in so many ways uh, in our journey to where we are even tonight. And I have thought about this, uh, Psalm 16, 6. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. The lines have fallen in pleasant places is a statement of providential care. That's really our testimony, isn't it, as a church? The lines have fallen in pleasant places. Do we put ourselves here or we we somehow climbed up that little post like a turtle? We just put ourselves No, 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 no. The lines have fallen in a pleasant place to the glory of our great God who providentially takes care of us. Let's champion that to the glory of him. This is our testimony concerning where God has sovereignly and providentially placed us. Great application. Well, providence applies to all of our lives, but in particular, the story of Esther is really about the people of Israel. God has forever attached His very name, His sacred name, Yahweh, which we call His covenant name, to the people of Israel. God's whole reputation is at stake in relationship to what happens to Israel. The very reputation of God. If Israel ceases to be a people and the nation of Israel is no more, then the God of the Bible... He's shown not to be faithful to his covenant promises. Either he's just flat not faithful or he's not able. Something's wrong if it doesn't come to pass. And as we have noted, the survival of Israel is ultimately about God. His character and his reputation, his word. Israel is singularly the one witness nation that God has in the world. They're the one chosen nation. There is no other nation that God is in covenant relationship with except Israel. Now, the church, you know, the church is a parenthesis people, and God's in covenant relationship with us as as his bride, the church. But in terms of a nation, it's the nation of Israel. Arnold Froes writes this, The pre-state Jews had virtually no chance to survive. It's a fascinating study in history. Uh, The surrounding Arab countries had publicly proclaimed that they would chase the Jews into the sea. No chance was given to the Jews to establish their own Jewish state. Jews, including many Holocaust survivors, were literally standing alone against organized Arab armies such as Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and Egypt. Even Saudi Arabia sent a special formation to endure the destruction, uh, to ensure the destruction of Israel. But things happened quite differently. Israel conquered more territory than the United Nations in their temporary decision had assigned for the Jews. The only explanation that is really credible for this is God's providential care of his people. Israel cannot be exterminated or we can't have the fulfillment of last days prophecies. In order for last days prophecies to be fulfilled Israel has to be back in the blind back in the land first in blindness and then they will finally come to see the truth of their Messiah. God has preserved them. And Israel is said to be the only country in the world that is under constant threat of immediate destruction from her enemies, which are massive and which surround her. And yet Israel continues. This is the providential preservation of God. And biblically speaking, that will continue to be the case. Well, the book ends by saying, Mordecai sought the good of his people, speaking peace to all his countrymen. Peace is the word shalom. I love that word, shalom. It refers to well-being. All is as it should be. And this has been the desire of the Jewish people down throughout the times of the Gentiles. And as a people group, there has not been a lot of shalom. Now, they had a little sample of it here under the leadership of Mordecai. But true lasting peace for Israel and the world awaits the arrival of Jesus the Messiah the true Prince of Peace. Well, in terms of application, God blesses those who bless His people. And that was certainly true of Mordecai, who did much good for his people and and greatly encouraged Esther in that vein as well. And God blessed because of it. Now, we live in the church age, but I believe as we uh, seek the good of the church and we live in that vein, uh, God will bless that as well. Uh, We have this promise in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, For our God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward His name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. God is not going to forget your work and labor of love. He is going to reward you. Our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Well, God is sovereign, and He is providentially caring for His own. No matter what we go through, that's a great bedrock truth to hold on to. William Kuyper said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, Mine. God is sovereign over all, and He providentially controls all. And when you're rightly related to God through Jesus Christ, you can rest easy in His sovereign, providential care, knowing that He cares for you, and that indeed all things work together for good for those that love Him. How wonderful that is. No matter what happens, nothing can change that providential care of God. Casting all your cares upon Him because He cares for you. He does. He providentially cares for us day in and day out. A lot of things to worry us. You know, we have this constant stuff here getting our attention, getting us distracted. We need to lift our eyes a little higher. There's a sovereign God who is over it all. And we're in His providential care. James Russell Lowell wrote in the 1800s. I mean, we've been quoting this for a hundred, you know, what? Over a hundred years? Two hundred years? Yeah, almost two hundred, maybe. I don't know when he wrote this exactly. He lived from 1819 to 1891. So anyway, 150 years, whatever. But uh, this little famous piece, truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future. And behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch... Above his own. How wonderful that is as we leave the book of Esther. May we leave knowing the truth of God's providential care goes with us wherever we go, whatever we experience. You cannot outrun the providential care of God as his child. And it's not a matter of how faithful you are, it's a matter of how faithful he is. And he is ever faithful to his own. All things are working together for good. Big picture for those that love him. Again, nothing happens by luck. Good luck. No, no, no. Don't say good luck. There's no such thing as luck. Where is it? I mean, that's not what we find in the Bible. There's no such thing as luck or chance. God is providentially ordering our lives. And he's the Lord of the church. He's the Lord of our lives. And the Lord, in the end, has his sovereign way. He directs our steps for his own glory. Standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. Let's have our closing song and then I'll close us in prayer here this evening.